Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome back to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman, medical toxicologist at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And for this episode, we're actually going to be talking to Dr. Guy Weinberg and Michael Fetaplace about their recent paper in the January edition of the Journal of Controlled Release. The paper is the Multimodal Contributions to Detoxification of Acute Pharmacotoxicity by a Triglyceride Microemulsion. It's a pretty exciting paper that really expands what we understand about how lipid rescue works in our patients. This is actually the second part of a two-part interview. So if you are hearing this first, I'd recommend checking out the prior episode where we talk about the history and development of lipid rescue. So while that's about the history of lipid rescue, this paper is really about the future of lipid rescue. And we'll put a link to the paper on our website. That's talkstalk.org, T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org. That's also where you can find past episodes and send us comments and commentary. You can also email us at talkstalk at talkstalk.org. You can also follow us on our Twitter feed at TalkStalk. Without any further delay, let's jump in. Let me introduce you to uh, Michael Fetty Place, the first author of the paper we discussed, and actually the first author of maybe half a dozen other papers coming out of the lab in the last couple of years. Hi, this is, uh, this is Michael. And one of the other key effects that Michael discovered some time ago and published in Critical Care Medicine a couple of years ago is that the lipid itself is inotropic. It is a uh, cardiotonic agent, and just getting the heart to beat better is a, uh, a direct effect and also a, a secondary effect of helping clear the offending agent out of the heart. I would say that the other interesting part of this paper is that we essentially have to redefine the sink. It may exist, but not as a static phenomenon. It's really a dynamic phenomenon. So we'd like to think of the, the sink per se as a shuttle. That is, that the drug doesn't just come into the this lipid phase in the blood, the drug is shuttled by the lipid from targets of toxicity to other organs. So essentially, it's from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, you'd call it accelerated redistribution of the drug from, say, the heart and the brain to other organs like the liver and skeletal muscle. Now, that's a great point that I really liked in this paper also, because I, that's the thing. We often just think of it as a sink, but the reality is a sink has to have some sort of outlet. And right. and this paper really talks about how the ability of the lipid to absorb higher levels of the drug than, say, the plasma 
it's not just that it sucks it up and stays there, but that it can actually transmit it to other parts of the body where it might have less toxic effects or it might be better metabolized or whether there's other things going on, almost like hemoglobin. It transmits sure. oxygen, but the reality is hemoglobin isn't what does anything. It's, it's getting it to the other end organs. And really, uh, kind of, you mentioned that sort of the three different theories then now that we have is possibly lipid sink or more, I guess, lipid transporter along with the uh, metabolic effects in terms of fatty acids helping to improve function at the sites of toxicity in terms of improving the the cardiac function. And then finally, this possible inotropic effect. Similar, I mean, with high-dose insulin, we find that in a completely separate type of toxicity and a completely separate mechanism, it seems to have its own positive inotropic effect. And so, but now some people's eyes glaze over because now it's complicated. And so, so this is the hardest part, though. We've seen that it works in people. Going back and looking at each of those different theories and which one contributes in which way is, it seems mind-bogglingly difficult. And this paper is really nice because you've done it sort of in two different ways. You've done it in vivo in an animal model, and then you've also done it in silico in a computer model. Right. So we've collaborated with uh, Belinda Akba, who's a faculty member at my institution, UIC, but in the Department of Chemical Engineering. And she had established a, a computational model of a lipid resuscitation in a rat that almost exactly predicts what we see in the laboratory. So it's a very, very robust and predictive model. So we asked her to help us model exactly what was happening in the current system and test various mechanisms in terms of their contribution to the overall effect. So this was a, a really great collaboration, I thought, between two different departments. And the other thing we should also bring up is, and the paper kind of has this in the background also, where when we just give um, lipid without the triglyceride, it seems like it doesn't do as well. So there's other studies that seem to suggest that there's more going on than just an absorptive effect. And so for this study, you have the animals. And the other nice thing about this study, which makes it cleaner, is it's just focusing on bupivacaine. You're not doing a bunch of other different toxic drugs. Did you ask, yeah, so do you want to describe the study or um, anything? Well, I, I would say, let me just point out that uh, one of the strengths, as you point out, is that it's focused in one particular model, but it's a parenteral model again. And I think that while we have a fairly good idea, uh, handle now on what I would consider essentially a comprehensive mechanistic understanding of the PK and PD effects of the lipid emulsion infusion, it still doesn't really apply directly to the oral ingestion. And that model and system is still out there waiting to be done. So uh, there are people who have done oral models, but we're waiting for a more mechanistic approach to help us identify whether it's a computational model or uh, experimental results directly, what the best optimal regime would be. In this paper, basically, we started with the idea of using a radio-labeled bupivacaine to answer the question, where does the bupivacaine go when you treat an animal with lipid emulsion. And with that simple question, starting with the hypothesis that the lipid will change the pharmacokinetics of the bupivacaine, but not knowing for sure that it would, we basically gave the animals a, a modest dose of bupivacaine, not one that would require chest compressions and add those kind of confounders of shock and high lactate and low pH, but just enough that treated animals will recover eventually. But in the first figure, we show the pharmacodynamic effects of a small dose of bupivacaine, which is that basically it takes 
a control animal, fairly long time to recover, but the recovery in the lipid-treated animals much faster, and that's not a surprise because basically that's the premise of the entire enterprise or exercise is that we want to understand this this phenomenon. And what we identified is that drug levels in the heart drop more rapidly after lipid emulsion therapy than in controls, and that this is contemporaneous or just barely preceding an increase in the content in skeletal muscle and liver. So there's essentially a transport of drugs from target organs to receiver organs. So there's givers and and takers, I guess you'd say. And a couple of important translational features of this, I think. First of all, we identified that there's a, a threshold of cardiac bupivacaine concentration below which the lipid certainly exerts its inotropic effect, but above which you don't see any difference from controls. And what that tells us is that to get the benefit of the inotropy, you really need to get the toxicity levels in the tissues down a certain amount first. And that would require a really good BLS. So if you've got a patient, and I'm reminded of the patient with uh, the bupropion overdose that I talked about a few minutes ago, who's uh, severely toxic or poisoned from the uh, cardiovascular effects of a drug, good BLS is absolutely essential to get enough coronary flow to clear the drug out of the tissues. And so initially you'll have a benefit from the shuttle effect of the lipid emulsion, but this is not going to be optimized with the inotropy until the levels of the drug in the heart are decreased a bit. So you can think of these as occurring in series almost. The shuttling effect is first and supplemented by good BLS, and then as the drug levels decrease in the heart, then the inotropic effect of the lipid can take over as metabolic function improves. Okay, so that's an important point. That's an important point to remember. While you're giving the intralipid, you're doing everything else. You're doing ACLS and BLS. Um, You're doing good CPR because you need a functioning uh, uh, circulatory system. You need to be able to perfuse the intralipid to the sites of therapy and to get the drug away from the sites of toxicity. And you're going to be giving other medications to support this also. And while that seems obvious, Anyone who needs proof of that, there's a, there's a great article from 2008 from uh, Mayer that effectively looked at poisoned pigs getting CPR, and one group got intralipid only, and one group got pressors, and the group that got pressors survived, whereas the group that only got intralipid died. So intralipid is not a single therapy when you're dealing with ACLS and doing CPR, and you want to help the intralipid work by getting it there with CPR and by treating the toxicity with adjuvant agents. The next translational piece, and this would be in figure three, panel H, is we see a very, very steep slope of the plasma to lipid bupivacaine ratio. And that basically says that the bupivacaine will really be bound to the lipid, but more so at the higher concentrations. So this tells us, to me anyway, that if you're going to use the lipid effectively, it should be given when the plasma concentrations of the offending drug are highest. Now, in the case of parenteral intoxication, again, we know when this is. This is when the patient is sickest, and it usually occurs just as they get cardiac arrest or seizure or not. But in the case of an oral ingestion, 
it's a black box. We don't really know when is the patient going to be sick. When is the patient's blood levels going to be highest? Is it an hour after the ingestion or 12 hours after the ingestion or 24 hours after the ingestion? And this is important to know because it will probably end up defining what the best regimen for treating an oral overdose is in terms of the timing at least. It's an excellent point because with an oral overdose, you have both continued absorption of the offending substance oftentimes, which is going to lead to increasing serum levels. But then at the same time, you get both elimination and redistribution, which is going to decrease your serum levels. And so it can be very unpredictable. And also when you're discussing sort of high, high levels, oftentimes that would be before redistribution. And a classic case of this sometimes is lithium toxicity, where somebody, the poisoning has already occurred. And if you see these patients late, the lithium is already in the brain. And so really, for some of these agents, early administration of the lipid emulsion might be helpful in terms of preventing redistribution to toxic sites, but that's that's anyone's guess. And so focusing in this paper on the bupivacaine and the um, parenteral toxicity from it is helpful. It cleans things up. And though I bring up lithium as an example of an agent where there is absorption and then redistribution that really drops the level, of course, you would never use lipid emulsion for lithium poisoning because lithium is an ionic salt and is not lipophilic and would not be amenable to therapy with lipid emulsion. But as an example for a drug intoxication where you get really high levels followed by redistribution, uh, it's a pretty good agent to use as an example. You've got great, I mean, there's a lot of data in this paper. And then you really, kind of what you're talking about, you try to sort of summarize in figure five, which sort of talks about how initially it seems like the lipid emulsion might help to decrease the toxic levels of the drug, both in the serum, but also at the target sites of toxicity. And that's going to be important because it doesn't matter how much inotropy you give to the heart. If it's not pumping, if you have a fatal arrhythmia, it's not going to be doing anything. So you get rid of the toxic levels of the drug, and that would be most effective at higher levels of the drug. Once you've done that sort of, and once you've overcome this threshold, then you might get some of the additional benefits from the inotropic effects of the lipid in terms of sort of strengthening a weakened recovering heart, I guess it would be the theory. Is, is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. And, and then eventually also once the heart starts to function again, really giving it additional metabolic support, the fatty acid or the, or the metabolic theory to the mechanism, which just is the heart works better when it's got a lot of you know, energy source to work. Right. So this kind of leads into another important topic from my standpoint, which is the continuous infusion that we like to give after the initial bolus, because it's it's clear from the early experiments we did that animals recovering following an initial bolus tended to fade after 10 or 15 minutes if they did not have an, a continuous infusion of lipid at a lower rate. And we took this as another indication that something more than a simple sink was occurring. And here we could argue that if what you want is in this metabolic phase a, a benefit of continuing to give the lipid in order to uh, sustain the metabolic benefit, that you would need a, a following infusion after the bolus injection. So the question then is, we know what we like to do with the parenteral toxicities. How do you structure the infusion following bolus in an oral ingestion so that you get both the metabolic benefit if needed and the continuing shuttle effect of the lipid. And 
This is important because the overarching problem with giving lipid in this system is that if you do not stop the lipid infusion or decrease the lipid infusion at some point, you can risk giving too much lipid. And that is a concern that I and others share that practitioners using this in an undisciplined way can end up administering far too much lipid than is safe. Yeah, and that's actually, this is probably a good opportunity to just to point out. So even though it's got a long, long safety profile, so side effects from over-administration of lipids generally, so you can see just a, a hyperlipemia. And anyone who's sort of drawn labs on some of these patients, you can almost see kind of a milky draw. Thrombophlebitis, pancreatitis, I think is a lot of people's concerns, effects on the liver just when you give a large amount of lipid and these are these are relatively rare, but they are on the list of adverse effects. That's a good point, Matt. And in terms of the, the safety issue, I'm not really referring to the issues of pancreatitis or possible lung injury with the, the lipid. I'm really more concerned about fat overload syndrome. Because, you know, the, the issues that's been raised with pancreatitis, I think, is a, more or less a fairly minimal one. First of all, from the standpoint that none of the patients that have been alleged to have pancreatitis following lipid emulsion required substantial treatment for that. It's, as far as I know, relatively minor versions of pancreatitis, nothing requiring ICU stay or surgery, as far as I'm aware. I don't know if any of them were really confirmed by imaging, and uh, certainly many of them, if there's a pancreatitis confirmed by imaging, it certainly could be a result of other confounders. The patients are in shock, the patient's getting other drugs, or even their overdose drug, which could cause pancreatitis. So ascribing it to lipid, I think, does a disservice to a drug which you know, could actually be very, very helpful. So I'm not too concerned about the pancreatitis. I'm really more concerned about this idea of seeing a patient who's responding to the lipid and then maybe doesn't tolerate the titering back of the lipid so patients continue to get very high infusions for a prolonged period of time. And that really can lead to the, the very real risk of fat overload syndrome, potentially fatal consequences. So I'm thinking of a few instances I've heard of and then a case report recently where a patient had received more than six liters of lipid in a relatively short period of time. And uh, that patient died. I don't, of course, they were very sick, obviously, but and you, um, just for people who aren't familiar, could you sort of give a, a one-liner as to how you would define uh, fat overload syndrome? So basically, I just know from the standpoint of the animals that, that if you give them too much lipid, they get uh, essentially, you see the liver is overloaded with fat histologically and grossly. And you can have you know, multi-system organ failure because it may be a combination of fat displacing oxygen delivery capacity or just fat causing toxicity to parenchymous organs. But it, it's definitely it, you're replacing blood with lipid. And as you point out, not just we're not talking about the lipemia that normally occurs when you with lipid resuscitation. You expect that lipemia to occur. We're talking about. Uh, massive overdose with lipid, which can essentially turn the blood into a lipid emulsion. So backing up, in the standard recommendations, we have an upper limit recommendation on the order of 10 to 12 mils per kilo over the first 30 minutes. And this is for local anesthetic toxicity. And this is based on a number that we know is effective in rats 
but also safe because looking at the LD50 of 20% intralipid in rats for a dose given over 30 minutes, it's on the order of 67 mils per kilogram. So we, even with allometric scaling, we have a pretty significant margin of safety. And then, Matt, if you look at the first several cases of lipid resuscitation for local anesthetic toxicity, the total dose between bolus and infusion was on the order of uh, three to four mils per kilo. So if we look at three to four mils per kilo is all that's needed and the safe upper limit we would consider around 10 to 12 mils per kilo is a great therapeutic index. But these, these cases where I'm talking about are patients who got many, many liters of drug over a period of a couple of hours. And we're talking about literally 60, 70 mils of per kilo of lipid. So I guess when I summarize, and I have a few points I wanted to make about lipid in this setting, one of them has to be not to give too much. And do you think there were, it seems like in those cases, and, I, and I've seen that with other therapeutics also where the bicarb is just left on way beyond what you need right. or other things are done. Do you think there were specific characteristics that contributed to those? Were these patients that probably would have expired anyway and sort of measures were continued that weren't beneficial? Do you feel like there was a lack of utilization of adjuvant therapies? I mean, one of my favorite papers is I think they gave bupivacaine to a bunch of pigs and did no ACLS, just lipid rescue versus ACLS. And they found that without ACLS, all the pigs died. And I thought that was um, a great example (laughs) of sometimes where we focus on the wrong therapy. Um, but uh, yeah, did you, have you found any unifying factors or any cautions oh, for people? Well, let me back up there, by the way. Did you know that most pigs are essentially hypersensitive to lipid? We were aware of this issue, but just as a sidebar pointing out that selecting the right model is very important. And it turns out that, uh, lipid never works when it's administered to pigs. And we, we're not exactly sure why. It may be a complement mediated phenomena, but most pigs demonstrate hypersensitivity and it expresses itself as Severe pulmonary hypertension and uh, sometimes uh, generalized shock, but not always. Oh. And uh, anyway, so uh, when you when you read your literature, pick the model correctly. And pigs are not a good model for lipid resuscitation. Yeah, I don't know what that says though. That pigs can't really tolerate lipid and fat so much, but the humans we do fine with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> There's some theories as to why that would be, but leave that aside for a second. The human scenarios that I'm familiar with would be where this would be something to really be concerned about is maybe a very, very small patient, like a a neonate or an infant, and the other where someone just leaves the lipid on for a long time. It's been done accidentally. We definitely do not want to see that. And the other scenario, as I alluded earlier, would be where the patient clearly responds to the lipid and stopping the lipid results in the recurrence of cardiovascular instability. And so the lipid just stays on forever and ever and ever. So I think a, a real simple way to get around this, two things. Number one is to follow triglyceride levels and target a, a particular level. And I'm going to say something on the order of 1,000 milligrams per deciliter, like essentially a 1% target for plasma triglyceride levels would be good and try not to exceed that by too much. And uh, the other thing that we're going to come out with fairly soon are some recommendations using our experimental and also the in-silico modeling for treatment oral ingestion with an eye to preventing fat overload while we at the same time sustain a sufficient lipemia to get the benefit of the lipid. So 
we're working on a paper right now for Annals of Emergency Medicine to kind of make a recommendation. So I can't really say exactly what it's going to be because that's still in flux. And all of these recommended dosing as well as monitoring and protocols you have available on your website, which uh, lipidrescue.org. Correct. And I, I guess I should have mentioned much earlier, maybe you can re-edit this, <laughs> put it back earlier. So Matt, the standard way we use lipid for treating local anesthetic toxicity is a one and a half mil per kilo bolus dose to the ideal body weight because we have to be mindful that, that we are going to adjust the dose for specific individuals. So we, we prefer to dose to ideal body weight and then we follow that with a, a continuous infusion of 0.25 mils per kilo per minute. Uh, and I would point out that this is not a precise number that needs to be adhered to with a pump. I would just recommend using a macro drip on a roller pump and giving approximately that much. And it is a fairly brisk drip rate. And that would only continue in the local anesthetic toxicity for about 10 minutes after the patient is returned to cardiovascular stability. And then we set an upper limit of about 10 to 12 mils per kilo. Okay, that's great. So that's that's a great dosing summary. I've seen some notices where people talk about, at least for the initial boluses, sometimes having to syringe it in just to make sure that it gets in fast enough. And it seemed like just for people who are going to be using this or practicing it, one of the biggest side effects isn't actually to the patient, but is to the lab. And in a lot of places, the lab will end up hating you if you administer this. That's a great point because, in fact, we're seeking the lipemia. So some people consider that a complication, but we're actually looking for a modest amount of lipemia. Something on the order of a 1,000 milligrams per deciliter is reasonable. And, yes, the blood will look lipemic. And it might interfere with uh, certain lab tests. But as an alternative to not surviving, I think that's an acceptable complication. It's a great point, though, I think, for talking to your lab, because this is very often where the technician that you get at 3 a.m. will say they can't run the samples because they're not adequate. But if you actually talk to someone who knows something, this is as in your paper, you spin down the samples, you, you get the lipid out of the sample that you're assessing. I think there's been some limitations maybe with totally bilirubin or some specific assays, depending on where you're working. But the reality is you can continue to check a lot of labs in these patients. It just means working with your lab. Exactly. And maybe it also means getting blood just before you, you give the lipid. If you're going to use it, maybe get a baseline blood level so that you'll have a sample, not only for laboratory values that will inform your treatment of the patient, but maybe later you'll have some levels of the potential intoxicants that you might be able to publish in a paper And as you watch the change in blood levels with the lipid treatment. And you bring up that, uh, and actually I should also say, because we just mentioned the website, the website is also available for people to submit case reports of use of lipid emulsion. That has been a very useful function of the website, which is obviously educational, but we also want to use it essentially as a forum where people can post their experience and share ideas. But I'd have to say, frankly, that the posting frequency has declined in recent years because it seems like there's a, uh, I don't want to call it publishing fatigue, but as the number of papers decline, I think this, and the number of posts that our, our website decline, I think it represents the idea that it's become somewhat quotidian. Editors don't necessarily want to publish something that 
another case report of something that's been done many times. And I know a lot of busy practitioners are not interested in publishing something that seems like it's not very special anymore. And I know this because everywhere I speak, people come up after a, a talk and tell me their examples of successful resuscitation without uh, without saying they would bother to write it up. And we see that all the time with, uh, I think, with research is, um, is something actually becoming less common or is it just not being reported? Sort of a reverse reporting bias. Numerous times we've talked about the distinction between really using it for local anesthetic toxicity and using it for the much more common but harder to understand oral toxicity from a variety of drugs. Is there anything that we're doing wrong? Matt, that's a great question. I'd say there are two fundamental things that I really want to get across, things that I think we can be doing better. And one is that I, I'm very concerned that lipid resuscitation is being progressively relegated to a last-ditch attempt by toxicologists, that in the emergency room, people are using other methods for lipophilic toxidromes that, that may not have levels of evidence that are any better than lipid and sort of by relegating lipid to a last chemical right sort of reduce substantially the likelihood that it will be effective. So I'm concerned that, that it will result in the lipid not being perceived as effective as it could be, but also in the fact that it may result in harm to patients because it's not being used when it could be most effective. We've already talked about that it would be most effective if given when the plasma concentrations of these drugs are high. But it also is deleterious to the efficacy of lipid if it's given when the patient is already in a metabolic shambles with, with severe acidosis or high lactate levels. And we also know that many of the pressors, but especially epinephrine, specifically impairs efficacy of lipid resuscitation. So if you're giving it to a patient who's been on massive pressor therapy for a long period of time, it's not likely to work. So that's number one. I want people to at least consider the idea of using lipid earlier, be open-minded to that. And then, of course, as I've, I've said before, although lipid we know is very safe, if it's given in overdose, an extreme overdose, we want to avoid this fat overload syndrome. So I would say those are my two caveats in the use of lipid. Just to clarify a tiny bit also, because I think sometimes people hear sooner and they think immediate. Mm-hmm. So if somebody came in with severe uh, toxicity and I mean, so in, in toxicology, we'll very often see tachycardia and from a TCA, we might see tachycardia and dry mouth or other things. And we would treat those with sort of standard therapies. We would uh, maybe uh, give them a little benzodiazepine if, if we wanted to bring the heart rate or calm down some of the adrenergic uh, stimulation. If they got widening of their QRS, we would give them sodium bicarb. Would you ever give lipid resuscitation sort of before the patient has even coded? I mean, before anyone has grabbed epi? Because I, I understand that the sad case is sometimes people have been resuscitated for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, they're on drips, they're on pressors, and of course it should have been given sooner. The flip side to that is, as I think I referred, I had a call where, where someone was was kind of mildly symptomatic and there was a push to use it out of a fear that what could happen. I mean, is there a soon that's too soon? So that's a great question, Matt. And I would say that this is a discussion that I'm having ongoing with uh, Michael and Belinda as far as the modeling, both 
PK and computational modeling of what would be the best time to uh, the best instructions to give toxicologists faced with patients in the moment. And one of the options that we're considering right now is the possibility that uh, in recognizing that treatment is going to be most effective when the levels are highest is possibly starting with starting early with an infusion and then giving the bolus only when the patient develops severe cardiovascular instability. And that might be a nice compromise where you're not giving a load that could potentially be problematic down the road in terms of total dosing until you need it. But at least you're getting some drug in early, some lipid in early rather, to take advantage of the sequestering effect. But I just want to point out that these discussions are still in play, that the regimens are still not optimized, and we need to do a lot of work, a lot of research and study to identify the best way to treat oral intoxications. Did I dance yeah, around no, that I think sufficiently? That's, that's, realistically, what we're saying is this is this is foreign territory for most people, and so certainly it does make sense that giving a potentially life-threatening therapy when it has the potential to do the most good is it's, it, that's that's when you want to do it. And I think that you are right about the perception that toxicologists have relegated lipid resuscitation to a Hail Mary last-ditch effort pass. It should not be after your fifth round of epi. At the same time, I would say if you're reaching for it before you've given any other therapies, just ask yourself why and always always treat the patient. And you are you are right. It might be at some point in the future where an early part of a potentially fatal overdose, we start a low-dose infusion. I think the acceptance of that, the hardest thing is going to be just when to use it and dealing with some of the uh, lab and other uh, – getting a lab and other abnormalities that might affect patient care. As a provider, we, we, um, we like simple. So this really leads into another important point, which is that the need for that large bolus was originally recognized for a parenteral overdose, not for the oral overdose. So when those patients get sick very quickly, you need the drug on board. You need the lipid on board very quickly. So as you point out, in the oral overdose, maybe when the patient is tachycardic and just starting to get sick, you could start at a low dose. And the reason you can do that is that we ha- we do have a 50-year track record of safety for lipid emulsion infusion. It's something that's – there's just almost no downside. So I could see that you would be averse to giving lipid early if there was really a downside. But if you're not giving the bolus early but just rather an infusion early and saving the bolus for a scenario where the patient is just about ready to get chest compressions – or hypotensive or having malignant arrhythmias, then I think that you get some benefit but without any sort of safety risk because lipid, after all, is very safe if you avoid these you know, massive overdoses. And part of your point, the paper was specifically about parenteral administration of radio-labeled bupivacaine, but there is one part of the paper where you specifically mention you found some increased urinary excretion of radio-labeled bupivacaine, and that might contribute, because realistically, if we're giving a lower dose, just spitballing, it would seem like you're relying more on the lipid carrier effect than the, uh, say, inotropic effect, but... It would be an interesting study to see if you could get radio-labeled urinary excretion of an oral ingestion. Yeah, we, we both Guy and I have been discussing a lot this this differential point of the enteral versus the parenteral, and one of the things we really would like to do is to, to have an understanding of uh, the contributions that could be played in an enteral overdose as opposed to a parenteral overdose, and 
I think it was a, it's a very good point that you make that in, in, a, in an enteral scenario, if you gave a low-dose infusion, that you would really be looking more towards a scavenging-based effect than any sort of positive cardiotonic effect. One of the big pieces of the, of the positive cardiotonic effect it is actually being moderated not only by some metabolic component, but by the volume. And so that large bolus that's given in the parenteral toxicity during, during a local anesthetic event will very much be moderated by that volume load that will help push the drug out of the heart. But if you're talking about absorption that's going over a longer period of time, you're going to want that continual carrier mode to be able to you know, move the drug from sites of toxicity to the liver for detoxification. And there's one other point. We made this point in the paper, and, and we, we were a little bit speculative about it, but we, we did see this increased urinary output, and we did see an increase in liver metabolism. And so we have been discussing if, you know, how large a role would that, that increased metabolism play in the possibility of having an extended overdose. If you are able to, you know, accelerate this redistribution and move the drug to the liver more quickly, can we take advantage of that increased metabolism to accelerate detoxification? That's an excellent, excellent point. And that's, I mean, specifically in the paper, you try to address some of the possible uh, hepatic metabolic effects by giving ketoconazole to suppress the CYP metabolism. And it, it seemed like, at least in this, it was a limited, it was a small part of the paper, but it didn't have a huge effect. Yes, inhibiting metabolism in, in this context didn't have an effect on the cardiovascular recovery but we, we were able to see increased organ concentrations. And so, as would be predicted, if you're not able to conjugate and not able to excrete, then you're going to see elevated concentrations of the drug because it's, you're not able to remove it from the system. And that's it's exactly what we saw, is that we saw these increased concentrations in all organs. However, in the normal redistribution phenomenon, you, you will be able to get drug concentrations in, in vital organs below the level of which you're going to be having these these negative effects. And this is something that we've actually started to move on to afterwards, is trying to understand what's happening metabolically and, and more at a signaling and cellular level as we move below these thresholds, and, and how is that playing a role in the recovery, so... It's exciting, and I'm and as I was I was uh, saying to Dr. Weinberg, I'm impressed that you were able to use both the sort of the the computerized model and the animal model to try to answer some of these questions in terms of figuring out that specific contributions to organ level lowering effects and serum effects and even physiologic responses in terms of carotid blood flow could not all be answered by the lipid sink theory alone or the inotrope theory alone. Just to clarify one tiny thing. So technically, though, when we talk about volume resuscitation, we often talk about crystalloids and colloids. Because lipid is in and of itself is essentially fat and does not necessarily interact with the fluid, is it not considered a colloid, or is it actually technically considered sort of a colloidal substance? It is a colloid, but it has uh, an isotonic value, essentially, like blood. This is a question that we've received before, is that it's classified as a colloid, but it doesn't exert any osmotic pressure because of the the way the mice cells are formed, so that instead of looking at it as individual fatty acids or individual triglycerides, you're actually looking at the osmotic pressure of the of the micelles, so it ends up not exerting any significant osmotic force. So in order to (laughs) clarify what I said, thank you, Michael. Essentially, it's the same osmotic force as saline. 
Okay. That's a great way to put it then. Okay. And that helps answer that. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover specifically in the paper or with lipid therapy? A couple of things that I really appreciate about this paper is that, in my mind, really does establish that there is a sink, although albeit a different one than we had originally presented. Because you see in the, uh, figure two, the panels, F and beyond, that there's a, a real shift in the um, partition coefficient so that uh, at a given level of uh, cardiac bucubicane concentration, the lipid results in a much higher blood concentration. So that's that's essentially a definition of a sink. And I think the other thing that we like was that, uh, or that I really like, is that there are definitely translational pieces. So, for instance, there's some evidence that clinically a small patient is at greater risk for local anesthetic toxicity with a nerve block than a large patient. And when we looked at and identified the skeletal muscle, sort of the answer to the original question we posed, where does the bupivacaine go when you give lipid? Skeletal muscle is one of the major receivers. So it would explain why someone with a small muscle mass would be at increased risk. And that's not only small adults, but infants as well. Uh, Michael, you want to talk about the paper? Anything special that you wanted to say? I... <laughs> Yeah, I was I was very interested in in the takeaways, and I think you may have discussed some of them in terms of delivering drug early, and how the how the lipid partition evolves uh, and is not static, such that we see these higher partitionings at the at the higher concentrations, but it was a time based partitioning, so so we don't know whether or not the lipid is actually evolving itself in the blood, and you may be removing certain parts of the of the lipid earlier and so that the parts that are being removed are the parts that are partitioning the drug more efficiently you know you, you may be removing the phospholipids uh, a question that we were not able to answer was um how is it that the the drug is being taken up is it just a purely a transport when it reaches the liver or is that is it actually being taken up with the lipid as we mentioned here and others have discussed you know you you do have significant uptake of intralipid and other parenteral nutritional supplements by the reticular endothelial system. And so perhaps the drug may be bound within the, the lipid micelle and the entire micelle is being taken up. Or it may just be that you have capture by the micelle and then movement into the plasma and then movement into the liver. But th this was something that we weren't weren't able to answer. Always, always future studies, I guess, available. But anyway, it's a, it's a great question and it's, and it's, it's appealing in its kind of inherent, understandable it just makes sense. I mean, one of the major sites of lipid metabolism and fatty metabolism in the body is the liver. One of the major sites of drug metabolism is the liver. Are these are these mycelial sort of allowing improved liver uh, absorption of the drugs rather than just sinking them or delivering them? I would say one of the one of the conversations I've had with um, friends who work in um, drug delivery uh, is that one of the, one of the big problems in drug delivery is that. Uh, these traditional carriers like intralipid are taken up so quickly by the liver. And so they end up being very inefficient drug delivery systems because they disappear from the bloodstream fairly rapidly due to uptake. But again, this gets to the point that people in drug dis delivery had not even gone to the point of thinking, well, you know, are any of these beneficial properties, is this, are, are these different uptake properties beneficial in detoxification? And that's what gets us thinking about next generation detoxification agents because you know the, the drug delivery community has been trying to deal with these things for years and years and years you know trying to avoid uptake and so they have a good 
you know, probably a lot of negative data that they have indicating drugs or formulations that are taken up by the liver too readily. And so these may be even more efficient detoxification agents. I think in the paper you sort of mentioned maybe a, a future world where there's a lipid mycel that has N-acetylcysteine so you can get targeted delivery of therapeutic agents to the liver or to specific sites. And it's um, both fascinating and a mix of uh, possibly truth and sci-fi and, and it's an interesting world. So one final thing I would just want to get across is that the, while we're still trying to work out what would be the best way to give lipid for these oral ingestions, it's, we could re- make a recommendation that uh, rather than stopping the lipid completely, as one approaches the uh, upper limits of administration, clinicians could drop the infusion rate substantially, but not to zero. So that might be a way that we, we could keep the patient safe, but s- still sustain the, uh, the benefit that one gets from the lipid infusion. And then that could be complemented with a serial triglyceride levels targeting something on the order of 1,000 milligrams per deciliter. Absolutely. I think that's a good, that's a, that's a, that's very good for people to be doing rather than just turning it off. As with most things, we want enough to work. We don't want too much. We don't want too little. Um, right. Which just sounds silly, but it's, it's true with anything. It's true with uh, high dose insulin also. People just say, oh, well, they're better. So we turned it off and then they, they code it. <laughs> and then we say, well, why, why did you just turn it off? So yes. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of Talks Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with uh, Drs. Weinberg and Fediplace. And if you have any comments, please send them along to TalksTalk at TalksTalk.org or respond to us at our Twitter feed at TalksTalk. You can also find us in the iTunes store. Please feel free to check us out there and leave a comment or a rating. That's often how other people find out about us. I'm Matt Zuckerman signing off.